and welcome to another episode of the Public Sector Heroes podcast. I'm your host, Frank McNally. This podcast is presented by Public Spend Forum and GovShop. And we like to tell stories about people that are doing amazing work in the public sector. We have a very special guest today, Kume Chibza. Kume is with Afro Valley. And I think that uh, I'm going to let you tell us a little bit more about that while you introduce yourself. So Kume, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Frank. Uh, thanks for the opportunity as well. Um, so I'm the founder and CEO of Afro Valley. Uh, Afro Valley is a social enterprise set up in Ethiopia, the Horn of Africa, to support farmers through digital transformation. Um, it's a platform that collects relevant data about farmers' social economic challenges and connect them to appropriate resources, which could be market linkage or capacity building. Um, the platform also solves like the biggest challenge that we see in the agro sector, which is transparency. If we look at, if we look at for example, the aid, uh, aid, huge amount of aid goes into the agro sector and to the African farmers, but then uh, we see farmers still being subsistence oriented. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I had this deep desire to look into the sector and see why this is happening, why the farmers are still poor, um, and then which also trickles down into uh, nation as well, right? Why the African nation is still poor. So pretty much this is what we do in Afro Valley. So the, the transparency, and you're talking about funding that's coming from the public sector, the state level that, you know, comes into, I, I guess, Ethiopia, and then the transparency that you want to promote through Afro Valley will help understand where those funds are going. And, and I, I guess, ultimately make sure that they end up at the beneficiary level, which would be which would be the farmer, is that correct? Exactly, exactly. Um, in addition to the aid, also commodities, right? So Africa sources a large pool of commodity, um, but then tracing back the the providence and see where it comes from would be much interest for the public sector and in the foreign market, and then also even the domestic market. So transparency is not only from aid point of view, but then also from commodities. Uh, so which gives us a holistic view into the sector. Now, how did you identify this as a problem that you wanted to solve? Um, so I'm originally from Ethiopia, and then uh, Ethiopia actually produces 55% uh, of her economy. It comes from agro. But then looking at uh, the people, society and the nation, we're still quite poor. Mm -hmm. And for me, I couldn't understand uh, the nation that's producing so much uh, raw material and sourcing much of the food sector is actually poor. So that was my first initial question. And then I started looking into the sector uh, and the sector obviously was very manually driven, uh, very traditional. Um, and a lot of the commodities that gets produced, their value is not really returned back to the, the state or to Africa in general. So for me, I thought technology can probably solve into number one, making sure there is transparency. Number two, also in terms of resource mobilization. If we understand the whole trace of commodity and the price point at each level, we can actually claim back some of the value and so that it can help us also to build back our, our nation. So for me, it comes from a personal point of view in terms of uh, us being poor. Mm -hmm. Right. And while having all the smart raw materials. Now you said you did you did research into this to this challenge. Were there resources available to you to assist in the research, or did you have to rely on 
you know, yeah. other techniques. Like I know in the United States, we have Freedom of Information Act requirements where we can actually request documents from our government and learn about some of the programs, you know, from a very elemental level. Did you have channels like that in your research or did you have to get creative? Were you on the ground? How did you kind of go around identifying the problem? Yeah, it's, it's quite a very good question, actually, which is personal to me as well. Uh, when I came uh, to the, because I used to live abroad and I returned back to Ethiopia after 20 years. Uh, and the first thing that I want to do is go visit the government entities to understand where I can help them. Because um, Africa, unlike other nations, it's a very socialist and a lot of the sectors are controlled by government. So I thought maybe I can, by doing a serious interview, I can get enough information from the government. And um, and then even I push the government if I can get fund, but then I realized quickly that capital in Africa is quite expensive. So I decided to do the self-funding um, to push at least up to feasibility study. So I engaged the government uh, to help me uh, give data, but then I could not only rely on to uh, the government because there could be the possibility that they could be biased as well. So I went to the ground uh, into each uh, farmers and I tried to understand their pain points. And then also I drew back the user journey from the farmers up to the government level and collected the data and then came up with holistic solution, not only just empowering farmer, but then also how can the government can change in terms of culture, in terms of supporting the sector and ultimately uh, generate more economy and more value. Mm. So you are actually visiting the villages, speaking with the people that are the intended beneficiaries of these funds. And I'm, I imagine you're finding, you know, you're learning that, that, I mean, do they even know the funds exist to them? Do they know that there, there are people there that are trying to help them? Like, I'm just curious to kind of hear a little bit more about your interaction directly with, with the, the people that you're trying to help. Yeah, it's quite, it's a very good question. Uh, for me, even to approach the farmers was quite difficult because they don't really trust you because hmm. that you're there to basically come and grab something or uh, exploit them. So there is that uh, sense of like fear. Um, so I had to use different mechanisms to basically even interview them. Um, and wow. I had to go to the community head to basically, uh, so he can introduce me so that he can make the interviews easier. That's uh, number one. Number two, um, as I told you, the economy is very politicized and very controlled by government. So a lot of the resource are channeled by the government. So the farmer may not know where the money is coming from. He might just think it's, it's coming from the government directly. So, um, and then sometimes the government might use it to promote themselves for elections and stuff like that. So, and even if you see the government structure, the in our country, we have like different divisions, like provinces and the province head could be even, uh, could have a dual uh, responsibility. He can be the agriculture uh, lead plus the uh, province lead. And this is how, uh, this is how the sector is. So it's very uh, politics related uh, because it's a major source of economy. So uh, a very difficult uh, sector, but what makes it interesting is um, that the approach that I took in terms of transforming it. Um, it's basically, um, I worked with the government. Uh, I presented to them the feasibility study. 
and then also the solution on the table and then what they could get out of it by being less controlled and working with the private sector to govern what it means to them and what would be the, let's say the opportunity cost for, for it. Um, so that took about six months, eight months convincing for them to basically say, hey, okay, we want you to collect relevant data from the farmers so that you can connect them with appropriate resources. We want to see transparency. Uh, but then still they said they want to be involved in the project. Um, and with that, my fear is also at some point when they see the value out of it, uh, they might basically come and take over the platform. So I'm still uh, fearful that one day uh, policy might change and they might say, hey, you have a 50 million population in your platform and you've got the control of the agro sector and we might be want to own it. Right. Wow. So, wow. So, so basically what you're saying is that the more successful your platform becomes, the more risk you fear will be in them commandeering the platform and then using it for, for their own potentially political or self-serving purposes. Is that why you've been privately funding your own work so far? Exactly. So there's two aspects why I did private funding. Number one, as you, as you said, for the freedom aspect, mm -hmm. because I wanted to be so free to basically do what I want and how I want it. Number two, as uh, in Ethiopia, um, startups, they don't get directly funded by governments. Uh, they, government usually issues bid and you have to compete and win it. I think it's basically a procurement procedure. So it's a very complicated and tedious procedure. Yeah. And sometimes they, the government might give it to the one that they favor. So there's a, uh, less chance for me, an outsider that's new to the continent in terms of work to come in to basically get a word to support my platform. So there is the expensive of cost of capital, but then also the other thing is the freedom. But for me, the freedom was what was the driving force for me to self-fund it. But I knew though, at some point I might be, uh, let's say, uh, running out of cash. And for that, I've been trying my best to basically see if I could engage donors, if I can engage organizations that promote transparency and then empowerment of the continent. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a challenge because the same organization, they ask you your history, uh, history of uh, operating similar project, history of, uh, you, uh, your spendings, for example. I mean, and at this stage, I cannot prove that because all the spending comes out of my pocket. Also, I can show them how much I spent and where I spent it, but then I cannot show them basically history of me working with an NGO or other organization and how I spent or mobilized the resources. So that has been my challenge. That is that is quite an interesting and, and well, I mean, it's a little bit of a sad challenge, you know, but I'm glad that there are people like you that are, that are sort of taking this up as their mission. I recognize the challenge and I mean, I know here domestically, we in the United States have some procurement difficulties, but I imagine it's, it's a whole different set of problems um, in the sector that you're addressing. Are there anything or any initiatives that you believe that either the Ethiopian government can take or maybe an international um, organization can take that would make it easier for you to solve some of the macro challenges that you're facing? Um, so, yes. And so there is the foreign policy. If we look at it from a macro point of view, 
foreign countries actually impose transparency and then also use for the transparency. Not just asking, okay, tell me how, how you spend the money, but rather show me a tool that could show me how you spend the money so that I can self-regulate it, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if foreign countries promote this concept, the digital concept of transparency, that would be great because then even it would be efficient the way the control management would be efficient and then also reliable. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of fund, um, the way it's channeled, because it, I can give you a scenario. One time I went to the World Bank and I asked them uh, basically why they don't engage directly mm-hmm. with startups. They have a wing, an FC wing, which deals with startup, but even those startups are the ones that are mature right. and are ready to scale. So, and then, I mean, especially in Africa, um, we're very green and immature uh, market in terms of startups. So uh, I was challenging World Bank that why can't they put their focus into the early stages if they right. really want the economy grow. So if we have, let's say, uh, international organization like uh, World Bank and IFCs, um, that can promote an early stage uh, project, especially impact projects, right? Mm-hmm. Then that would be great, uh, which we don't have a resource pool like that at the moment. Interesting. Uh, I read your concept paper that you put together sort of describing the, you know, the problem in the background and, and noticed in it that, that one of the ways that you're planning on tackling the, the transparency problem, you know, and, and then just the ensuring that there's awareness of this that's not encumbered or uh, manipulated by a public sector agency would be the use of blockchain technology is that still uh part of your your organization and part of your solution and if so how are you using that today because i actually think this is one of the the real significant applications of blockchain that 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 can really serve public good Exactly. And this is one of my passionate technology uh, out there right now, because the fact that blockchain brings democratization to the platform, because historically everything is centralized. If you look at cloud solution, they're centralized, right? But then uh, the fact that blockchain can actually give this uh, consensus mechanism where people can actually agree and no one needs to control. um, Right or have a power under one single source is what made me passionate about the technology. And that's why I wanted to introduce it into the agro sector. In addition, the immutability aspect mm-hmm. of the data is also one of the value that I saw, which makes it relevant for Providence areas um, that we can introduce to the sector. So. Um, right now, uh, I'm yet to use it because we've got a regulation challenge in Ethiopia. Um, in addition to the blockchain, um, I also want to use uh, cryptos mm-hmm. to fix the issue of uh, friction between neighboring countries in terms of currency. Um, because in Ethiopia, between Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia, there is huge cross-border economy, informal economy. Uh, that never been captured. Um, and that could be a value for, uh, for the government because they can get tax out of it, but then also it creates some sort of peace and a structure of data across the border. Um, 
And uh, I tried to pitch that to the government. So we're still at early stage of, uh, I guess, looking at the regulation aspect and what the government needs to do so that I can be able to fully implement it. But creating the ledger, putting the data structure, everything that's simple and I can do it. But then I wanted to have the crypto value aspect and the data sharing aspect across the border uh, to be uh, looked at by regulator and then so that I can proceed towards that direction. I mean, I think that's terrific. And I, I don't want to go too deep into a, a rabbit hole, but I mean, I, I do understand the how you would use the immutable digital ledger for some of these transactions and then how crypto could really enable this informal economy that you're that you're talking about, like, you know, I just understand access to banking in, you know, in these agricultural spaces is not what it what we are used to here in the United States. So I can see that as a significant challenge. But I want to pivot a little bit and ask you uh, if you have examples of of farmers or the, the beneficiaries of your work. Do you ever get to hear from them? the impact that it has on them? And if so, could, could you share an anecdote or a story of, you know, where this has really touched somebody on it on an individual level and how they've gained? Uh, actually, we're in the early stage of the platform development. Okay. Um, as you can appreciate, um, uh, for a farmer, especially that's based in Africa and, and the rural farmer, uh, access to digital is uh, rare. So we had to follow some early stage uh, development of like or implementing the digital infrastructure. So giving them access to medias uh, and then also empowering them with digital skills before they start using our platform. Mm-hmm. So we works of rolling out that infrastructure. And that's why also my partnership with the government was so essential and key part of the business model mm-hmm. because digital in today's world, it is not just a software, it's an infrastructure. So right. you had to be able to provide them with phones and then also proper training skills, and then onboard them to the platform like mine. Mm-hmm. So we're, but I had an interaction with farmers where we gave them out of our, out of our pockets and uh, media's like phones, uh, where they were so excited to get access into even f- calling someone abroad. Right, mm-hmm. I can see the joy that they get out of being the digital citizen. Yes. So. Um, and we showed them some of the prototype uh, and to see if they're willing to accept because as I told you earlier, for the stop platform where you can actually get telemedicine, where you can actually book your transport, where you can uh, market link with a retailer, wholesaler, or anyone uh, who's keen to get, and where you can even access also farmer inputs. So mm-hmm. for them, like this is another world, virtual right. world, they can live in. It's a big infrastructure. It's like being a uh, government coming in and telling them, hey, I'm giving you a hospital, I'm giving you a, a car, I'm giving you this. So for them, having that access and the convenience was um, a joy for them. So I can imagine as we come to the implementation, uh, what we can get out of it. And I mean, the satisfaction and then also what we can give back to society. I, I mean, I can only fathom. I mean, I think for, for a lot of people, sort of trying to conceptualize of a life without access to, to digital infrastructure, access to the internet would just be unfathomable. And I, I mean, I think this is such a strong part of your mission is just getting this digital access, digital, digital literacy um, and into the hands of people who, you know, have probably never 
I mean, they maybe, I mean, what is, what would you say is currently their, their digital awareness? I mean, do they, do they recognize like, Hey, we don't have access to this or is it like, Oh, wow, this is something mm-hmm. that exists and I can, and I can use it. Yeah. It's, to be honest, it's quite scary when you look at uh, their social setup and on top of it, the digital inequality quite scares you what life would be for them mm-hmm. post that post the COVID world. Right. Because right. me, what I can see, like uh, when COVID hit, everybody jumped into their their phones, their laptops to right. communicate, interact, and to even go into their market. That's not the case here in rural Africa, um, because some of them they they don't even have analog phones. Some of them they don't even have lights and you know power, mm-hmm. uh, water. So you've got all these social inequalities, and on top of it, the digital inequality, um, which is quite scary. So. Uh, and for me, that's where I saw the necessity of my platform where we can bridge all this gap all at once. Um, and when we, I tried to do a little bit testing in terms of their digital literacy. Uh, it's quite sad because um, uh, even to open an app was a challenge, right? Yeah. To locate and things within the phone was a challenge. So uh, it's a very a long-term project, uh, which requires that at least uh, for one farmer, probably a year before he says, hey, I can trade with your app. Right. So it's a- well, you have to start somewhere, obviously. And it's, it's admirable that, you know, you've kind of chosen this as your mission. Are there, are there things that, I mean, we have a pretty diverse audience on this podcast. Are there things that people can do to help you in your mission? And if so, how could they either get involved or what what are the resources that you most need right now? So there's two resources that I I may need, um, access to digital media. Uh, So if there is organization that can facilitate, um, I guess, decent uh, uh, medias like phones, uh, smartphones or tablets or even computers, um, they can be. They can contact me with my email address info at afrovalley.io. Okay. Um, in addition, um, if uh, organization, if they, if there is organization that promote transparency, um, and then also work towards the global food security mission, um, and would like to partner with us uh, using their capital, uh, we're happy to work with them as well. And they can reach me to in on my email address info at afrovalley. That aisle. Excellent. And we'll make sure that those uh, email addresses are included in our story notes. So if anybody wants to get in touch and learn more about how they can, they can help, they can do that. Uh, as we, as we sort of come to the end of our time together, I'm, I'm really curious because you're fighting a very good and important fight. And I know you've been at it for a while and I imagine there's been some setbacks and pitfalls, you know, in addition to some of the great things you've done, how do you personally, how do you stay motivated to keep doing this and to keep fighting this, this fight in, in the face of what I imagine are some pretty, some pretty difficult obstacles? Um, the challenge, uh, how I'm motivated uh, to do the work that I do is, uh, has different levels. Number one, uh, as a woman championing such a project is something that I think can be an example for any girls that want to do work in this sector and especially in the tech sector. So that actually motivates me to do good and also to be successful. The second aspect, what motivates me is um, I, I love freedom. I love the freedom of 
going and doing things and then also being rewarded for my work. So, and technology actually brings that into the sector. So if you look at what I mentioned about blockchain, for example, the fact that it gives democratization into a sector and then also make sure that nothing, everything is transparent. Um, and then also make sure that you get rewarded for what you've put in um, is basically something that technology can facilitate, blockchain can facilitate, and then bringing that into a sector and then seeing it as what motivates me. That's incredible. Do you have any advice for other people that want to tackle really challenging social issues that exist you know, around the world? Uh, yes. Uh, for me, this, is, this was a fight uh, of a three years fight uh, in the works uh, from, the, from 2018 up to 2020, now 2021. Um, and I thought that I can come in within the first year and implement uh, the solution quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then that wasn't the case. Uh, the bureaucracy um, uh, aspect, also understanding how you can actually uh, turn your problem into solution and how you can get the buy-in is basically requires persistence. Um, and then also making sure that like you kept in check of your wellness because uh, being a founder uh, in terms of your mental health, it may not be easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is going to be a lot of setbacks and failures. Um, and then also, even if you don't have the right support system, um, basically, if you're only the one that's fighting, then you might be in that solo environment where basically things get harder and then it can even be a struggle for your mental wellness. So um, getting being persistent and standing up for your vision um, and having the right support uh, and then surrounding your, yourself with the right people and positive people that can actually help you with your vision is imperative. And, and that's what it helped me so far. It's, it's not only me, it's basically the people that I'm surrounded with that actually every day called me to say like, how are you doing? How can we help you? Uh, and basically those are the people that supported me and, and that learning came from my setbacks as well. So those are the two things that I basically insist on persistence and then also surrounding yourself with the right people that can pick you up when you fail. I mean, you, so your, your challenge went beyond just scoping the problem and, and finding solutions, but you are actually dealing with issues on a personal level with your family kind of challenging you and, and maybe doubting you. Exactly. Uh, For them, they're like, how could someone that lived abroad, worked in a huge conglomerate, can come to Africa and fight with like farmers? They couldn't find them. They couldn't see it. For them, that was a logical choice. But for me, I saw what I saw. I saw the macro level and I saw the bigger picture. Right. And for me, I wanted to be the the Moses of (laughs) Africa. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I can only imagine emotionally how that that must have felt with the doubt and the skepticism, you know, because it, there is an element of, you know, prodigal daughter returning, you know, and, and with wisdom that, and, and an aperture that, you know, they probably didn't have access to. And, uh, and that must've just felt, gosh, I mean, that must've felt really hard. And, uh, you know, if you want to speak for a minute um, on how you sort of persevered through that, I'd love to, you know, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, and exactly. I would love to. I mean, it's basically, I'm a very stubborn person. Mm-hmm. If I start something, it has to finish. And uh, it has a, it's a strength and weakness. 
But then for me so far, it got me through all the challenges. So my personal character of being stubborn and, and basically maneuvering through different uh, channels to basically bring the ambition to reality. So when I got my first contract, by the way, uh, two days ago, the government basically agreed to kind of uh, fund it. Oh, congrats. Uh, yeah, a portion of it. And for me, like I was almost in tears because that was such a long shot. It took about three years and knocking the door of every minister you can think of. Even I went to the prime minister and I wrote him a letter saying, listen, I lived abroad. I lived in countries like Singapore that's so advanced, but I'm back here where electricity is a challenge. Mm-hmm. And I basically gave my time to give back to the society. And is there anything that you can help me? But you don't get a response because I can imagine they're busy or maybe their attention is not there. And maybe I'm not popular mm-hmm. enough to get their attention. So, and then also when you go and pitch your idea to governments, some of them, uh, you, you saw how the debate between Facebook and um, the US Senate in the past. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like both sides, they don't communicate because there is this digital literacy even in the government sector. Yeah. Going and then explaining your vision and the macro impact of your platform is like talking to a wall. Right. They're like, because they see technology as like a software, a simple thing. But really, uh, what I'm introducing actually is something that changes or brings structural change across even the borders, bringing people together and breaking that artificial borders. Yes. And, and that requires policy change and collaboration across na- uh, nations. And all this thing, I can see it, but the government cannot see it. Amazing. What a large, thorny challenge that yeah. I know we have to solve. And uh, I just appreciate your efforts in this. And uh, I hope there's other people like you that are out there uh, doing these types of things, but I imagine there's not enough of them. And so, you know, hopefully listening to this podcast, maybe some other people will be inspired to take action and to, to persevere the way that you have. Exactly. I, I hope so too. But that's also my mission to promote as much as possible, especially for women, because women by nature are very dedicated. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you though uh, yeah. for giving me the opportunity even to vent out. <laughs> sure. Well, th- I mean, I appreciate having, you know, the opportunity to play a very small part in, in helping to share your story. So Kume Chibza, founder and CEO of Afro Valley, I really appreciate you being on with us today and telling your story about the work that you're doing in the public sector. We wish you all the best of luck and look forward to helping to promote your story and get more people interested and engaged in the issues that you're that you're fighting. Um, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Frank. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to our show today. For more great content from Public Spend Forum, check us out on the web at www.publicspendforum.net.